Just a note before we start. Our show talks about touchy subjects that may be difficult for some of our listeners. Take care of yourself. If you feel you need to seek help, see the links at the end of our show notes for resources. Hey y'all, and welcome to Touchy Subjects Podcast, the podcast that aims to break the silence that tends to come with conversations around domestic and sexual violence. I'm Sean. And I'm Amanda. And today we're going to be discussing narcissism in leadership with our special guest, Lindsay Ruiz. So thank you for joining us again, Lindsay. I'm excited to be back. This is great. Um, It's going to be a great continuation of the what we started with the first episode of our chat here. And um, I just hope it brings more to be for people to think about and to use it for their their advantage. Yeah, we are very excited to have you back again. If you did not hear the first episode we did with Lindsay, please go and check that out and then come back to this one um, because it will be a bit of a continuation on the discussion we had last time. But before we jump in here, I want to make the clarification point for our listeners. The discussion we're going to have today about leadership is specific to workplace leadership. Um, We experience leadership everywhere. Our law enforcement, our leaders of some some parts of our community our elected officials, our religious faith leaders. Um, so for this purpose of our discussion, it's specifically on workplace. And it's probably the, a really important part of the discussion because we spend at least eight hours at work, if not more, every day and probably through the weekend. And it's a huge part of our our life. And so I, I think it's a great discussion to have yeah especially when you think about like the people you spend the most time with like it's usually our loved ones and then it's almost directly going to be co-workers like i see my co-workers more than my, than my best friends but i talk to them more but it's, i see them so often that the interactions and the relationships that i have with co-workers are often also going to be instrumental on how i'm feeling throughout that day did i have good interactions i'm gonna feel better does my does my boss suck well, that's going to be a harder thing that I'm going to probably take home with me. So really jumping in then to this discussion, um, for our listeners, Lindsay, do you want to kind of go over what narcissism actually looks like um, and what that is so we can kind of create that distinction for them? Yeah, absolutely. So in the general sense of the pathology. Let me say this first. I want to clarify to your listeners. I'm not a clinical psychologist. Um, and so I think that's important because there's a lot of clinical and medical aspects of talking about narcissism and our personalities um, that I'm not a formal authority on. But when you get to understand these concepts in the context of leadership, there's a lot of information that needs to be cross-pollinated. Uh, because it is definitely based on, you know, the behavioral aspect of who we are as people and how we show up in the world and how we grew up and how that affected the way in which um, our understanding of the world kind of filters through our personalities, our beliefs, our ways of thinking. So in, the, in, in a general sense, you know, narcissism is a personality disorder. It's part of a a group of personality disorders, which in psychology and psychiatry are called 
cluster B personalities. These are personalities such as psychopathy and Machiavellianism and um, asocial disorders um, that pretty much hinder an individual from having a, um, a healthy perception of reality when it comes to relating to other people. Um, these are individuals that have, well, there are different takes on how they developed in that manner. And there, you know, there's research about whether or not is, you know, there has a genetic component, um, you know, that of some genes that people have inherited from their family lineage. There's another part that's behavioral on how, you know, based on the environments in which we have to grow up when we were little and uh, the healthy or not healthy relationships that we have with our parents and our, you know, the people that are supposed to take care of us. And so when the environment is not healthy and the child is not given the, is not taking care to the basic needs of what it is to be a child and the right level of attachment that they need to have with their caregivers, children develop certain coping mechanisms that in that very early stage are more survival mechanisms to, you know, go through their, their lives, trying to understand why my, my parents ignore me, why do they uh, treat me wrong, why do my parents don't love me, why don't I have attention, why do I get invalidated and whatnot. And that becomes maladaptive as they continue to grow up. Now, there is a part of our psychology in general that make us, all of us humans, narcissistic in our very first part of our lives, um, which is another component of the more robust clinical conversation. But for context, we all go through stages of narcissism when we're very, very little. Um, let's say babies and toddlers, all, all they think is, the world revolves around me and they see the mom as an object of satisfying their basic needs. When you are a teenager is another stage of life where narcissism shows up and you know how teenagers see the world all for themselves and they're trying to find their own identities and how to navigate the social lives um, where everything affects them more intensely. But you suppose that as you, even if you're coming from a, a, a childhood that is a little bit more adversely impacted and you then go through your natural process of development, you suppose that as you get older, you outgrow certain maladaptive behaviors and then you become an adult and then you're able to relate with the world in a more empathetic way. What happens to narcissists in particular is that the more they get entrenched in their the disordered personality, they never outgrow their perception that people are just objects and that they are just there to supplement the need for attention that they have um, as what they expect from, from the world to, to give them, you know, as something they deserve, as something they're entitled to. And um, that shows up in the most extreme ways in the form of abuse, but that also shows up in the way in which, you know, those kinds of individuals end up relating in the normal life, in the day-to-day -day of life. And a lot of those people end up in positions of leadership because narcissists um, also have a, an aggrandized 
sense of identity, um, which is has a, a lot of different um, layers to that. But in essence, is you know I think about myself as you know the best person, the most talented person. Uh, and it's a fantasy world that they created for themselves to protect their ego, to protect their insecurities. But it's a fantasy that they believe. And so they go out into the world with that fantasy and that's how they see the world through. Um, and that turns them into people that the only way they can thrive and they can actually fulfill their own fantasy is through control and manipulation and um and using other human beings to achieve the things that they think they're entitled to. Yeah. So in a nutshell, it kind of comprises a lot of that and many other things that are, I think for the purpose of today, that should be enough. Yeah. Um, and one of the things you said in there too, that I want to uh, point out a bit for our listeners is that not all people who are abusive are narcissistic. Um, and those who are narcissistic can learn to not be abusive. Um, it, that takes a lot of work um, on their part, but it's just making making it clear that even if you have experienced abuse in your relationships, whether it's a dating relationship or from your employer, that doesn't necessarily mean that that person is a narcissist. Maybe they are just abusive, but there is a nice overlap of narcissistic tendencies and abusive behaviors. Yeah, I mean, they're gonna be on the spectrum with the other, you know, types of personalities that become abusive. And sometimes um, the, the, the unknown part of these has to do with the statistics, right? They're, they're, it would be nice, right? If we, if we could find a track record of who, who's actually diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder, which would be like a very specific way to say, well, this person exhibits this trait, therefore um, they're full-blown in, you know, a, a, a person with a personality disorder that likely will not change, uh, not even with psychotherapy. But there is then there, this, the, the overall spectrum in which our own narcissistic traits may or may not play a role in how we kind of develop ourselves and, and play out, out play out into the world. Um, but the, the problem with this, where I was going with that is the statistics part. If you go out and research, you know, what is the percentage of people in the population that has narcissistic personality disorder and how many of them end up in leadership positions? there's a baseline that at least six or seven percent of the population at least in the u.s has been diagnosed right that diagnosis that go in a database that you can actually monitor and the people that do research and studies and stuff like that can use to continue to inform the field of psychology and psychiatry and come up with better better interventions but the tricky part is that for somebody to get a diagnosis, you have to go into a, an assessment consciously and be able to sit down through that assessment and provide the data, right, that um, gives the diagnosis of that assessment. There's a huge percentage of the population that is not self-aware to say, I have a problem, I need to get assessed, and I need to go get treatment. And so... The, the flow part of 
making an assessment that is broad to say somebody's narcissistic or not is that what is reported is potentially very, a very, very, very small sample to the amount of people that may be out there, you know, embedded in society that don't think there's nothing wrong with them to begin with. Why would they go seek any kind of assessment, any kind of treatment? And those are the, 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 the individuals that we likely get to deal with on a regular basis without knowing. Yeah. So looking at kind of that workplace leadership then, mm-hmm. where we know that we're probably going to be interacting with somebody who is narcissistic because we can't obviously know every single person who is just like with anything else that requires reported data to be reported. Um, how is it that somebody who is narcissistic ends up in those leadership positions? Because like, if we're recognizing like, yes, narcissism is bad. How is it that so many of them end up in those leadership roles? Because they exhibit qualities that are confused with leadership. We need to remember that in the context of a workplace in particular, everything that has to do with a workplace is directly linked with a result. Right, workplaces are businesses. They're there to make money. They're there to provide services and create products and um, thrive in a capitalist society, which they also contribute to other dynamics, right, outside of the organization. So that is the mindset of the business. And because it's profit driven and it's results driven they see people who have, let's say, less empathy, more ambition, more charisma, are significantly more mature and more ready to drive the business side of the workplace, right? We have a little, in my view, we have a little, a little bit of cognitive dissonance with these concepts where one of the you know, biggest leadership challenge that every leader in every organization would say is hard to tackle is how do you manage this, the, the task, the getting the job done side of the work of leadership with building the relationship, nurturing your team, creating an environment that is more humane. And that part, that side of the, the equation of leadership requires a special person. Therefore, we lean towards the other side, which is we still need to drive the business. We need to get results. We need to become hardcore. And um, that's a perfect environment for people with narcissistic leaderships to thrive. It's like even thinking about the, like the general perception that we see, like even in movies and TV shows of like the leaders and like the really big businesses, something like Wolf of Wall Street movies, kind of things like that. Those people who end up in those leadership roles are the guys who are like, oh, yeah, I have no problem stepping on a little guy. Like, I will fight my way through. Like, I will be better than you. I will make sure I drag you down. And I will get up to the top. Mm-hmm. And those are the people that are also in real life ending up in these leadership roles because they had no qualms about stepping on the person ahead of them to get above them. Mm-hmm. And that is a key characteristic of narcissism. They feel no remorse. And that's probably more of psychopaths. And sometimes those two type of personalities are linked to each other. But uh, but not having remorse, 
um, not really feeling like ethical behaviors is a sexy thing. Um, you know, that sort of unhealthy sense of entitlement where, you know, I'll do anything and everything and I'll get anybody out of my way um, that does not embolden me to go to where I need to go, right? Um, they don't have any particular sentiment for exploiting others. And we see it today with, you know, the, the, the market, the job market issue that we're seeing with the amount of layoffs and things that are going mainstream. There's zero guilt or remorse or, you know, for taking actions that really affect people and create consequences for other people. Because if you if you tap into that side of leadership, then it makes it really hard to take action, right? If you if you technically if you over uh, compromise the effects on people, and you don't have the ability to balance what it is to get something done or take an action in detriment of people, then you're considered an ineffective leader. And so in those contexts, and so, um, so it is, it is that these individuals that already lack that sort of sense of connection with other humans, um, that seem to seem to be handling those circumstances in an easier way than those who develop more empathy and more humanity. Right. And it seems like, as we're talking about this, like, a lot of those qualities are things that are valued and revered in some workplaces, right? Because, you know, you, you got to have that person who's cutthroat, who's willing to make those decisions that, you know, might hurt someone else, but, you know, that's what needs to be done. And, you know, if you're talking about people who already have these narcissistic tendencies, then they don't have that little voice in the back of their head saying, wait, maybe there's a better way to do this, or maybe I shouldn't do this. Um, and so then those people tend to rise up in those ranks because they're producing those results that the bottom line wants. And even speaking of the, even speaking of the layoffs that you're talking about, looking at just what's going on with the games industry, for example, right now, where you've had thousands of people get laid off between Blizzard and Riot, but it's always the letters that they send up to staffs like we've had to make the hard decision that we need to like some we unfortunately had to do layoffs even when we know riot and blizzard are making tons of money right now and it's never the solution of well if the ceos and the higher executives were willing to take pay cuts we could save those jobs because we're not meeting quota but that's never it seems like that's the option it always feels like it's the layoffs and we're just going to push that work then onto our other employees because we know we can because your leadership isn't in a position where they're willing to admit like i can take a pay cut and save jobs and do things that are going to be better for my employees they seem that they only look out for themselves and that's that's why it's important to to share this context with people because at the end of the day when somebody gets laid off or somebody has to leave their job because it's an impossible environment or you know they get fired whatever the situation is that ends up ejecting the vulnerable person what happens is that we internalize it as if it's something wrong with us 
intrinsically as individuals. And what we don't see in those moments is that everything that you just talked about is part of a system. Narcissistic people in positions of power don't work alone. They surround themselves with more people that buy into that way of um, being and working, right? That enables them, that protects them. And this is also a carryover of years and years and decades of cultural indoctrination almost that is lingering from the 1980s when companies like General Electric with this guy, Jack Welch, um, instituted short profit, short terms, massive layoffs, everything for the shareholders as opposed to a stakeholder model of business, which means everybody wins, everybody is considered in the ecosystem. And so we've been carrying that over generation through generation and um, it has seemed normal and we have bought into as if it is the only way to do it. Um, and we have internalized, which is part of the whole narcissistic conversation. We've been fully gaslighted to believe that if, even if we raise our hand and we say, well, this doesn't seem right, it comes back to you as if you are the one who is defective. You are the one who's not looking at things in the right way. And you have to accept that the norm is was the right thing to do. And that those kinds of leaders are the ones that know what they're doing. And, um, and we need to start challenging those paradigms because um, it's evidently not working. And I think we are seeing it more and more closely now that we are going through a more clear shift of um, in, in the path humanity is heading. Yeah. All this discussion also makes me just think about the, I don't know if either one of you ended up seeing this because I'm far I'm on TikTok far too much, um, but it was this employer on a podcast saying if they were asking if they were in the right or wrong because they had tell, told their employee the day before that they had a meeting at eight o'clock or was like, is it the day before like pretty short turn like short turnaround. There's a meeting at eight a.m. and the employee sends back, "Hey, I'm not going to be able to be there. I have a workout class at eight a.m. I will be in at nine, like normal." And it's a bunch of people online who are like. Who was in the right who was right or wrong here and there's a bunch of people who are siding with the employer in this situation but i'm like if your employee works nine to five like you knew 9 a.m was when they were supposed to be there but you decided to say like nope we have a meeting at eight o'clock i'm going to completely disregard your schedule and tr make sure that you are going to be here because you're a new employee mm -hmm. so it just feels like that's the manipulated and the manipulative side of an employer saying no you're going to do this because this is what I'm telling you to do. Disregard what your regular hours are. Yeah. I mean, it, it starts with a person, but it becomes systemic and then it becomes cultural and then we're all in it without even knowing it. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and um, the, the more little nuggets that we are open to listen to and to question, right? Well, let me, let me understand this from this other angle. What are my parameters? What do I consider good leadership, what are the kinds of people that I want to look up to um, and, and not silence your own voice when something feels wrong um, is a really important, it seems like a small next step, 
but it's a ginormous step in taking control back of your own narrative and your own experience, which at the end of the day is the only thing that we have. And, um, you know, we we started talking about narcissistic leaders and you were saying something important, which is, you know, everything is on a spectrum and not everybody that's on the extreme side is on the other side. Mm-hmm. And um, I always talk about um, bad bosses too, because we tend to go mainstream with this terminology and people are, well, these are bad bosses. My view on this is there are bad bosses who are not narcissistic, who are actually good people. And they're just bad because they're either new to the role of leadership or you know they didn't have enough training to become a manager or um they're still working on their own personal leadership they're they're trying to get clear on their own values they're trying to uh they're working through their own integrity lines you know building their own credibility um developing a more sensitive cultural way of looking at their teams and their organizations and understanding those dynamics. And so they're probably ineffective for the time being, but they're intrinsically good people. There are people that have self-awareness. There are people that are willing to put the work in to to outgrow those shortcomings. Um, There are people that at a minimum treat people decently and with respect and have um, a baseline um, ability to relate with others and to show, you know, um, behaviors that are more ethical just because it's part of who they are. And so narcissistic leaders do not outgrow those type of shortcomings. If anything, with time, they become ace manipulators. Um, which is the problematic part of this because when they manipulate others, it goes, they go straight into undermining the self the self-esteem of other people. And it could be their employees, there could be their peers, they could bully up to their own leaders. Like the way that they move around the world is shattering the spirit and the intrinsic value that in the, the intrinsic self-worth that other individuals have because it becomes a threat to them. So those little behaviors are important to keep an eye on when we feel like, you know, we're being thrown into a situation where certain mistakes are covered up and there's blaming around and scapegoating around and triangulation and you are in a confusing situation where you're finding yourself more and more um losing your own identity and your own sense of reality because you're dealing with this type of individuals when you're in front of a a bad boss who is not narcissistic you still stay true to yourself and your basic dignity still respected you don't see any effect on that so um lindsay i was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about how that maybe narcissistic leader in the workplace can change the culture of the workplace and have other people who maybe didn't have narcissistic tendencies acting a little bit more to try and fit in to try and make it. There is, um, so there is a, a, um, 
an eminence in the world of organizational leadership and whatnot, who passed away last year. His name is Edgar Schein. And um, he wrote and researched and did a lot of um, uh, um, publications and things around organizational culture and the relationship of culture and leadership. And what he says, that the premise of his argument is that that leadership and culture are two sides of the same coin. Cultures, leaders create cultures and cultures create leaders. So that to say, when an organization enables people with these tendencies because they are quote unquote effective for the bottom line, what happens is that number one, they are going to recruit people that align with the type of enabling and or um, uh, support that they need in order to remain protected, right? Of their the things that they do behind doors. And with that, they're also going to send a signal into the organization for other leaders who are in, under development to to understand what's okay and what's not okay in a leader and so those other newer leaders are going to pick up on those type of behaviors and they're going to recognize that that is what makes them thrive if the leader is super political and they what they do is cozy up to other leaders younger leaders are going to look at that as the norm right for well i have to cozy up to my leader because he's the one that's going to open door for me i had um I, 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 had a, I have a bunch of examples, but one that comes to mind right now is um, this leader that was in an organization I used to work for that used to tell her team, the thing here is that you all need to understand how to work the system, right? And so she would mentor people to know how to work the system because that is how people would make it in the organization. So they bring those behaviors, they model them, those behaviors get celebrated or go without punishment or reprimand. And people who are trying to become leaders also or managers see that as, a, as the model to follow. And um, they may become bad bosses at first because that's the only thing they know, right? And then all of a sudden it'll catch up with them and they will have some consciousness that's telling them this is not necessarily a, a good thing to do. But you may also be picking up on other people with the same narcissistic tendencies that are probably also on the spectrum and um, continue to involve in them and making the network much, much, much bigger. And so it becomes a, I mean, organizations become narcissistic culturally, right? They, they start developing unspoken values. I mean, they're not going to put in the value statements. We don't care about people. We don't do this. We don't do that but you will see the incongruence between the values that the company professes and what really happens behind the scenes and how incongruent it is that we don't behave according to those values. So you will end up in organizations where there's no concern for others. There's a lot of lip service. There's um, a, a reckless disregard for the safety of others. Um, you know, a lot of people stealing ideas in order to advance themselves, right? Those type of nuanced behaviors that are very specific to narcissistic that are simply means to an end 
that younger leaders are picking up on because they see their senior leadership advancing, um, displaying those type of behaviors. That's probably a long answer to your question, but it has so many <laughs> little corners. No, that was perfect. And it was, it was just what I feel like I needed to hear in that conversation too, because we don't all start off with, you know, thinking, oh, I'm going to act like this at work because I want to, like, that's, that's usually not people's goal is to act that way. But if you aren't a person who has a narcissism disorder, but you find yourself acting that way, maybe you need to take a look around and see what you're surrounded by and see what's influencing your behavior. That is a beautiful point. There's nothing to argue there. And this really feels like a, like our workplaces are microcosms of like the greater society at large. Obviously, like that's just how that works. But looking at how narcissism in the workplace ends up building narcissistic employers, narcissistic businesses, you can really see how this kind of plays out a bit in terms of like how nonprofits usually work, where like if we have multiple similar nonprofits all competing for a very small chunk of money, you have to prove and show that you are better than the other organizations in your area if you're the one who wants to get that funding. So it might end up becoming your organization says, well, I don't care about what happens to X business or X organization across town because I need the money for us. So we will do whatever we can to make our organization look better, look like we're the ones that everyone wants to be involved with. So that way, not only are we going to get that funding, but we're getting rid of the other competition. We are entrenched in a narcissistic society and world. I mean, this could explore, this could go overboard, you know, if we talk about the state of the world today and mm -hmm. how war is taking place and people fighting for their piece of territory over a planet that nobody really owns, right? And so everything comes down to, to those type of uh, pathologies. Um, and that's, you know, for me, it's important like to rail it back to who you are, what are you informed with? What are the things that you're using to build your paradigms? What are you looking up to? What are your own values? What are your integrity line? You know, who, who are you choosing to follow? we are always going to be following some role model, right? That's how we learn in life and that's how we find ourselves. And so who are your role models? What behaviors do they display? And do you, are you proud of becoming that at some point? And even, you know, becoming better at that, whatever that is, right? Because we tend to outgrow our mentors. Um, and to me, it's a, it's, that is the individual piece in which we need to develop a better sense of control uh, so that we don't end up entrenched in, in relationships at work that, you know, affect our, our self-esteem and our own identity. This conversation really gets me kind of thinking about, and again, sorry, Amanda, for bringing up public health stuff. <laughs> um, <laughs> this but... doesn't discriminate, okay? <laughs> this situation does not discriminate industry or race yes. or sexual orientation or mm -hmm. this is for everybody. Well, <laughs> yeah. um, looking at it in terms of like prevention and like prevention models used through public health, like if you're looking at like the socio-ecological model, 
where it's like if i'm starting if i want to do prevention work yes i want to impact societal level change like obviously that's the goal because if i can impact that like it fixes everything right like if we didn't have a narcissistic narcissistic society we wouldn't have narcissistic workplaces or have nearly as many so when you trickle that down though looking at like you said Lindsay, the individual first focusing on yourself what are your values what are your belief systems and how do you then move forward from that on interacting with the relationships you have with other people and then how going from there how does that work in the workplace and businesses then how does that work your community and then society at large so really if we want to see healthier workplaces we have to look at what our values are and then model those behaviors in the workplace and try to counteract some of the messaging that we might be getting of this is what we want a narcissistic person or someone with narcissistic traits in leadership because that's how we're going to get results and show them there is another way and that other way is having that good that quote unquote good leader or that leader who's going to take care of their employees or look out for them because you're going to have a healthier workplace overall I agree. I was talking to somebody this week about, I see myself personally as uh, someone that I've been preparing my whole life to make change from within the organization. Um, a lot of people decide to divorce from working for a company, right? And they become entrepreneurs and they have a different life which I found that most of those people do that because the environments within corporate are so unbearable, but, and so uninspiring sometimes too, mm -hmm. or they have gone through their own dose of toxicity that was traumatizing, right? But companies are gonna continue to exist, yeah. right? People are going to continue to be employees because not everybody can be an entrepreneur and not everybody is going to have their own business and not every, right. Depending on where you are in the, in the, in the social, in the social hierarchy, right. You're still going to have to work for somebody and become productive um, in the best cases. And so I, I see myself and I see my role personally as a leader or someone who can make change from within. And, um, and exactly what you said, you know, we can we can show up in a different way and we can demonstrate that you don't have to sacrifice the a business mindset, a results-oriented mindset, and still be honorable people and decent people and treat people with dignity and um fight for you know the 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 right decisions at the table think more stakeholder oriented where, you know, you consider the parts and you find the places of compromise um, in negotiation and those kinds of things, but that where you're not walking over the dignity of another group. And so I agree with you in that evidently, right? The more we can take a step back and really realign ourselves. Like, who is the leader I want to be? How do I want to show up? And how do I use my leadership as an instrument to change the paradigms and to demonstrate another way and to create different role modeling expectations um, so that we can then create a better ripple effect and we can influence the culture. Now, sometimes that comes with a big, big, big personal risk. Um, 
but I think it is also a risk that is worth committing to um, because we need to, we need people out there showing the possibility of, of leadership that is healthy. Um, you know, especially as we see more, more of the Gen Z generation, you know, interjecting the workplace who are more awakened, who have more language, who are expecting more of society and the, the, the generational leaders that are on the exit side. They need to have a, a, a role model that confirms that you know the way they're looking at humanity and the way they want to challenge the status quo it's is acceptable and it's valuable because they're the ones who are going to own their generational changes from here to come from here to from here to the future mm-hmm. and the rest of us are going to stay behind yeah i love nothing more than seeing a bunch of gen z people just like not give a shit and just like willing to call out and do like Say like, no, I'm not going to work for you if you're going to treat me that way. Whereas like millennials were like, I want to say that, but like, I really like the market market sucks for everything. I just need money. But if we were more, you know, if we cross generationally could then align more, mm-hmm. you know, we will give courage to each other because, you know, at the end of it, it is the problem with narcissistic leadership, which I hate that to combine the two words together. Um, but the problem of narcissistic people ending in, in positions of leadership and the biggest pain they inflict in the organization is the invalidation of other humans' needs. And if we could find each other, no matter what generation we're in, and validate each other and see each other and hear each other and create that type of dynamic... Not, not only will it be healing for all of us, but it could be a much, I think, a better platform to force multiply much better innovation and ideas that would be super revolutionary for not only for the jobs, but like how do we push society forward um, beyond policy, beyond, you know, simply in the way in which we treat each other, in the way, in the way in which we come together into dialogue, in the way in which, in which we come together into ideation. I, I mean, that alone for me is a huge win. But you need people that are willing to step in and see each other and create that type of vulnerable environment that feels empowering um, and not invalidating. Or that you're doing it for somebody else's, you know, self-service yeah. uh, purpose. Yeah. It's I've enjoyed seeing like a lot of videos and like memes around like millennial leaders, like millennial managers in organizations where they're just like, oh yeah, no, like if you need time off, like you don't need to explain why you're taking time off to me. Like as long as your stuff's done, I don't care. So it's fun seeing like how as we have progressed, like we're slowly getting to a point where we might have like those leaders that we want to see that do have that empathy for their employees that do genuinely care about their well-being and want what's going to be best for them inside and outside of the workplace because you can't ignore one or the other um so it is fun seeing that it's happening so kind of sticking on that a little bit and we've talked about it quite a bit Lindsay. but if we're trying to reframe 
kind of what leadership looks like in a workplace. What would be some qualities in your opinion that would be the most beneficial for that leader to exhibit? So I did, I was telling you before we started that I did some research on leadership alone. I interviewed a few, a number of leaders and then I collected data and then I try to come up with like, what are the, what, it, what is really what's working right for an effective leader who's trying to balance the business side, the getting stuff done, the seeking results, that sort of drive, but also not sacrificing, right? The well-being of their people and the development of their people and putting them in a position where they can also be successful. Um, and so I interviewed a few leaders, um, some of them, and I'll, I'll give you just a little snapshot of that and some of the things they share with me. And then I'll, I'll bring us into a model of leadership that I think it's phenomenal to use as a reference, which is already studied and researched and we don't have to come up with something, you know, made up. So one of the things that we talked about in those interviews uh, some of the themes that came through were, you know, how much they come, their, their value proposition, the way in which they combined their, um, their intrinsic values as leaders in, in the best benefit of the organization and the people they led had a, a combination of, you know, accountability, like how do we actually hold a self-responsible position in the decisions we make, in the actions we take, in the commitments we make, um, competence, like actually coming in and figuring out what is the best way to achieve something from, a, from an informed place, service, the pursuit of excellence, and empathy. They also talked about, um, with me, um, resiliency like how to work how to prepare their teams to fail as opposed to succeed all the time and creating that type of environment that cultivates that sort of improvement mindset um and they had a, a conviction for driving a vision um seeing themselves as a coach that could combine and grow people in different parts of the organization at life and, and have a more holistic way to, to develop leadership capabilities that combine technical aptitude, interpersonal ways of working with each other and intrapersonal growth, more like self-esteem and empathy and those kind of individual qualities. Um, and they also talked about themselves as leaders in that they would keep an open mind and would seek um, purposely and deliberately to understand the perception of their of themselves through the eyes of the people they relate with so that they could keep a reality check. And when they become too, you know, um, their ego gets boosted or they feel like they're doing everything great or they, they, they fact check it with the rest of the people they work with to make sure there's some humility, you know, maintained through the process of growth as leaders and teams. And they had the last thing that they shared with me is that they had um, uh, a non-tolerance approach to any toxic behavior like backstabbing and gossiping and um, 
you know, triangulation, like behaviors like that, that seem normal. And um, they would cut it, like they would upfront be like, this is not acceptable on our team and would consistently address the behavior as it shows up. So, um, so this is a summary of the conversation I had with them, which for me was very informative because it kind of aligns with this sort of distinction we're making here, right? Between what a bad boss could develop into, what a narcissistic will never develop into and how I as a leader and as a contributor can use as parameters to look up for who is gonna be my role model. I think one of the ones that really makes a nice, dis like the most succinct distinction between a bad boss, but what they could be and a narcissistic boss will ever be is helping your employees understand how to fail. Because like, I feel like a narcissistic boss is like, I will never fail. So that's not even a thought that would cross their mind to educate their staff on how to handle, which is like, that's like the biggest thing. Because even like in the work that Amanda and I do, like if I'm trying to do a presentation or a training, like there's going to be things that I say incorrectly. There's going to be events that I plan that no one's going to show up to. But if I don't know how to fail, that's going to be detrimental to my overall work working outcomes because I'm probably just going to give up trying to do stuff or not try something new. And if I never even thought to plan on how to fail, well, I'm not even going to be able to function now. It's so funny that you went there, Sean, because that's what I was going to say too. And I was going to also say, where was that course in college? Like how yeah. to fail gracefully and to pick yourself back up after because everybody is so focused on your success that they don't even want to acknowledge the fact that it's not always going to work. You're going to fail at something. And how can you keep going after that? There's some good literature that's newer that's coming up around failing. Uh, there's this author called Amy Edmondson that is super famous. She just wrote a book about failing forward, I think is the name of it. Um, but yeah, nobody teaches you that. <laughs> and then you end up in these organizations and and you're pressed for um, you know results and getting it done. And you know, it's so fast paced that it's it's complicated to not, and then you develop fear of failure, which is another dimension of, you know, um, treating your own um, psychological things, right? And so it becomes more complicated. But I mean, I mean, like I said, every every, I think everybody in leadership and those people that are doing research may come up with, you know, a combination of these things. I think the, the key, the key part of it is to always remember the context of leadership. When we are at work, we want to balance our relationships and our accomplishments where it's not an either, or is not a, I seek results for the, you know, before anything, or I seek relationships over any, everything. We have to balance and, and both and with those two concepts so that we can incorporate and be able to, to move through those two ideas in our organization at life and be able to accomplish both things. Yeah. And just to put it in here too, for them to show, um, 
you might think you're a good leader because you do genuinely care about your employees and you want to make sure with your like you have empathy for them, all that stuff. But if your focus for them is only on like making their time here enjoyable or making their time here like feel good, you may then shift too far to the other side where you're just taking on things because you don't want to give them to the people that you're supervising because you you don't want to give them too much. So you take on then too much, which is also in turn not going to make a super great workplace because once you're stressed, then your employees are also going to feel that stress. So yeah, finding that balance can be a really difficult thing to do, but it's worth trying to find. I think sometimes, you know, people look at leadership roles as glamorous and um, which is why we have so many narcissistic people pursuing them and all about the success and the, the, the spotlight and, you know, but honestly, people who tap into leadership from a, from a responsibility with the world standpoint and um, I mean, it's taking those risks, right? Leadership doesn't come without taking risks um, personally, professionally, as a team. Um, it does not happen either effectively without developing the right level of competence. You have to know what you're doing, even if it's at a baseline level. You know, people that come in and you know who are the quote unquote leaders that just happen to make it there um, that you cannot rely on because you know more than they do. And then when you know more than they do, you become a threat to them. And so then it becomes a whole vicious cycle. So leadership in essence, real leadership requires a competence, both on the personal side and the relationship side, as well as the business side of things, because sometimes you have to make big decisions that require information that require, you know, past experiences that you need to replicate in amalgamate. Like it, it, it's a big responsibility. Um, and you also need to have a compound of values and principles. And we're all going to have different mixes of that, right? Like what's a value for me may not be a value for you. But there's also a spectrum of values, right? There, there are humanistic values, whether for me it's called honesty and for you it's called uh, integrity, right? We are kind of on the same page as to what we value from each other and what is our what are, what are our lines for respect and our boundaries. Um, as opposed to values that are not necessarily very conducive, like, you know, I'm just going to focus on making people do things because I call that accountability. Right, um, we need to be very informed and very developed in understanding that. Um, and in my view, when I think of leadership in the in the in the most truest sense of it, and I think, you know, it, it's about it's it's a good thing. I mean, you you are supposed to follow and to learn from people that have developed those values and those competences and have overcome those risks before you have, so that you can then at some point get the baton and become yet another good leader, right? So anything that's, that does not represent that for me does not fall in the category of leadership because it doesn't, you can follow people, mm -hmm. but where are you follow them to, yeah. right? So for me, that frame of reference is important. 
it feels like there's like you need to have that contingency plan almost like if i for example if like i were to leave my position do i feel confident enough that my the, the people i was supervising would be able to have someone move into that role and be able to continue on from where i was or did i just monopolize everything so that if i were if i've i've made myself become such an asset now that they could never get rid of me because i haven't trained anybody to be able to do this role which is and, manipulative yeah it's making sure that you're for sure always going to be the asset and you can never but you're never going to be able to move on from there then in that organization that organization will never be able to develop even further than where you're at because you have made sure that they will never have anybody who can fill your shoes well those people eventually i mean they, they it, it works for a little bit mm -hmm. it's coming from a place of control but eventually they themselves turn into single points of failure and and the organization takes care of that eventually you know and 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 people like what you mentioned who prepare their their succession those are the best leaders mm -hmm. i know when i when i walk into executive roles one of my responsibilities is to train people to succeed me because number one is the only way other people are going to step in and become leaders, whether it is to take my position or move into the organization in other positions of leadership, right? Where they have been developed enough to take any other position of leadership, we continue to raise the bar. Um, or, you know, like I said, it's, it's, it's the best quality of a leader when you are not clinging and you are knowing that your, your role is to really develop and role model and teach people how to think about things critically and make good decisions and understand the ecosystem. Like the, there's much more to being a leader than just being a boss. And um, the more you move up, the, to me, the bigger the responsibility to become that role model and to create that sense of career succession where other people can aspire to and look at somebody in a leadership role and say, I really would love to learn everything from this person, including the values, including the principles, including understanding behaviors that are not conducive. It's, it's an overall growth experience that we should have as a team. And I think that's where there's a big difference then between are you a leader in the industry or are you a manager of people? Because if you're a leader in the industry, you're going to try and get to that point where the people who you supervise, the people who are looking up to you, using you as a mentor, can then branch out. If you are simply just trying to manage people, then that's not where your mindset's going to be. And maybe just start there, right? And yeah. you, but if you are someone who is aspiring to call yourself a leader, that means you're going to have a bunch of people looking up to you. Not You're not just going to be there transactionally to have people do their jobs. They're going to think of you as someone they they naturally can learn from and that someone who is naturally going to make an impact in their lives in their careers and even you're even though you may not be aware of that yourself 
be sure that everybody else does expect that. <laughs> and so you may start in a, in a management position, which is a stepping stone, but the moment you commit yourself to either follow a leader or become a leader, I just hope more and more people do it for the right, the right things, for the responsibility of it, for the more encompassing team experience and organizational experience that we can have. Um, and that when we're not work, I always tell my teams that, you know, our, our experiences are transitory. We're going to be together for the time that we're going to be together. And that's not forever, but we want to use the time that we are together to become the best people and the best talent and the best innovators we can be. So that when we look back at this experience, the memories of it are, I remember when I worked with this team and I learned everything and that it was a defining moment in my life and not necessarily looking back at a team experience and feel like, thank God I got out of that. And that person was horrible. Like, you know, I feel like the moments are made of those memories and mm-hmm. In my view, that's the ultimate responsibility a leader have to impact people positively. So I know we're at the hour now. So I just wanted to make sure like you are, do you think like we're at a good point where we can kind of like wrap up? I think so. I can can wrap up with a couple of pointers on like this sort of model that people may want to look into if they would like. Um, I came across with it, I don't know, in 2007 or eight, we're not going to talk about timing. Um, <laughs> and I got trained on and then I came across again throughout my career. And it, the more I, I think about it and read about it and employ their ideas from it, it makes the most sense to me because it's a good combination of serving, servant leadership, personal leadership and business leadership. Um, people can look it up as, um, the Exemplary Leadership Model um, by Kausis and Posner. It was created in 2000, whenever. And what he talks about is what an exemplary, exemplary leader is and what are the behaviors that an exemplary leader display. Um, they talk about behavior as if it is an operating system, right, in the leader's capabilities. Um, and they talk about five different areas in which a leader should behave when we are looking up to someone to admire. Mm-hmm. One is, you know, leaders have the ability to model the way some of the conversation we were having about role modeling, the responsibility that it takes to lead by example, develop other people, pre- present yourselves as accountable before you even ask for accountability for, from others you have to demonstrate your own self-accountability to the people and to your own commitments to the organization. Um, The other behavior is they inspire a shared vision. And that is to me the distinct, the differentiator is not the vision of the leader that we have to follow, it's a vision that we all can see and can build upon together. Um, so that it is, you know, our our collective experience as a team and our collective conviction as a team that the future is full of possibilities, that that vision is more than just creating profits for the organization or making that leader move up their ranks even more. Um, 
<laughs> the other part of it is these are leaders, the exemplary leaders in this model are people who challenge the process. Um, so they're not complacent. They don't take things at face value. They think critically, they research, they, you know, investigate, they, they engage people in conversations, they have dialogues. We it always trying to look for um, what, are, what is the best way to overcome setbacks and embrace growth and improvement for the sake of everybody's benefit. Um, even if that means disrupting the way in which things have been done. Um, and then there is a, a, a quality of these leaders in which they enable people to act. Uh, they create an environment that is trusting enough and paramount enough where they understand that achieving that shared vision requires a team approach. They bring other leaders and allow other people to step in as leaders so that we can all build the future together and, and really you know, raise the standard of performance and, and, and engagement. And ultimately they encourage the heart. So back to the conversation where we started, right? There's a, there's a, there's a balance between disrupting, changing, achieving, moving, you know, with the responsibilities that we have, but do it from a place where um, we are showing genuine care for the significance of one another in the process, where we show genuine care for one another, um, and where we appreciate and motivate, and it's a personalized way to appreciate and motivate, is not just a lip service pizza party, Right, it's a way to build a strong sense of connection amongst our team, which is in you know it's gonna become really the foundation for achieving the other, the other four um, parts of the journey. So, uh, so just nuggets of ideas for people to have some frame of reference, some paradigms when they look at their own leaders and be like, I want to be like that. I don't want to be like that. Am I being manipulated? Am I following for real? What's the choice that I have there? And I will make sure that I link in our show notes a link to the model as well for people to look Great, at. Great, I'll send you something. <laughs> Perfect. Um, and I do enjoy that about the model too is that it feels like it's it's specific enough to give you ideas of how you can improve your leadership qualities, but it's open-ended enough for you to be able to kind of interpret that, what would work best for you or for the people that you're supervising. Because what might work best for some of the people that I'm supervising might not work best for somebody that Amanda would supervise or that you would supervise or what works best for you to address one of those points might be, I might have to do it a little bit differently because my personality is different. Um, so I do like, I do enjoy that it's specific, but open enough to be able to be attributable to anyone's leadership style. Yeah. So, Amanda, what do you have for me? <laughs> I just, I think this is a great conversation. I think there is a lot of stuff that we talked about that um, people can kind of really take with them into their own lives, whether you're the CEO of a huge company or a team leader or a key holder at a small company. It, it doesn't matter where you are on the spectrum. There's so much that we talked about that can either 
help you redefine what kind of leader you want to be or develop that style as you're growing into it. So just thank you. Thank you for this conversation. <laughs> oh, I can I, I can talk about this all day. And I appreciate, the, <laughs> I appreciate the space. And I really hope, you know, people, I really hope people listen and they take some ideas and some notes because I think we can navigate some of the confusion that exists today better if we have something to compare it to that gives us an alternative. And so, like I said, this is not the only alternative. It's the alternative that I found for myself to feel like it's, it's right, it's robust, it's encompassing, it's, it's honest. Um, but even if this is just a little piece of information that spark other pieces of research that people want to do on their own, that's also valid. Yeah, yeah let's just get people thinking about it. That's, mm -hmm. that's really all we can do. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Lindsay. We are so happy to have you back again. Um, we've genuinely enjoyed this. And I am sure our listeners are going to love this conversation as well. So just thank you for being willing to come back. Yeah, anytime. Awesome. <laughs> well, anytime you want to join us, Lindsay, you are more than welcome to. So thanks again, Lindsay. And before we sign out, Lindsay, do you want to push out any socials to our audience? LinkedIn, uh, Lindsay Ruiz. I think you can add it to the the body of the yep. the text, right? But yeah, they can find me on LinkedIn. I don't have any particular business or anything like that. It's just me and me and me. So if the, if anybody wants to reach out and they want to have a further conversation or get further points of view, I'll be happy to. Awesome. Yep. And links to her LinkedIn will be in my show notes, in our show notes as well. So feel free to check that out. Um, so thanks again, Lindsay, and thank you all for listening today. Please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at Touchy Subs Pod to keep up to date when we have new episodes and new content going out. Please email us any questions, comments, or concerns to touchysubjectspodcast at gmail.com. And please rate and follow us on your favorite podcast listening app. It really does help the show out. And in the meantime, don't be afraid to challenge, ask, and discuss when it comes to touchy subjects. <laughs> <laughs>